Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Revelation. Again, Revelation chapter 2. Let's go ahead and uh, read these verses together, verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will... Give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Let's agree in prayer once more. Lord, this is your word. We thank you for it. And as we consider it here tonight, may we, like those who received it originally, have ears to hear, Lord, what you have to say. May we receive it, Lord, and we apply it. May we put it into practice. Lord, may your word bring conviction where needed tonight, encouragement where necessary. Lord, work and move in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've come to the third church here in the seven letters to the churches, the first of which was Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus was that church that had faith, they had patience, they were passionate about doctrinal truth, but they had left their first love in their zeal for function and their zeal for doctrinal truth they had wandered from Jesus and if that seems surprising that you could have a passion for doctrinal truth but have left your first love this church was proof that theological understanding that good works that service does not equate to spiritual maturity and a strong relationship with Jesus And so they came to value the horizontal things over the vertical things, the relationship with Christ. And Jesus says to them, repent, and I will let you eat of the tree of life. That first letter reinforcing the importance to all of us that we must maintain a relationship with Christ. We must remain near to Him. All of the other things should come as an outpouring of a right relationship with Jesus Christ. And from there, we made our way to the second church, the church in Smyrna. This church, uh, this city, Smyrna, uh, can be translated myrrh. That's a, 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 an embalming uh, fluid of the day. It was, uh, it was something that was offered uh, there, mixed with, with wine to Jesus. And uh, it, it's something that speaks of death. And in fact, there was much death in this particular city. The church was faithful even unto death. Facing terrible persecution, they were encouraged to stop being afraid, even when facing death, because they have a Savior 
who knows. They have a Savior who understands. And so they were commended. No, uh, no, no judgment against them. No rebuke for them. Rather, just a commendation of their firm faith in Jesus, their unwavering faith in Jesus. They valued the next life over the current one. And they serve as an example to us still today to stand firm in the faith, to trust in Jesus, and that when they overcome, they'll be given the crown of life. A reminder that there is an award for, a, for those who finish well. There's rewards for us in heaven. A lot of times we, we, we don't think about that. There was something we talked about in our Q&A this week. It was a question that came up about heaven and crowns in heaven and the fact that, that we're in a training ground right now. Even though it's difficult for us to understand, God is doing a work in our lives right now, preparing us for glory. And there is responsibility in heaven. There are rewards in heaven. And so it should be our aim to say, with a right heart, of course, to say, man, I want to finish well. I want to I want to usher, be ushered in to eternal glory and to hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And, uh, and so to be faithful here in a few things, such that we could be faithful over many things in eternity. And so we see such a wonderful example from those there in the church in Smyrna. And tonight then we come to the third church, the church of Pergamos or Pergamum, uh, translated differently depending on your translation. And we read here, remember, John writing exactly what he is told to write to the angel of the church in Pergamos. Right, And so uh, this letter being given, I believe, to the messenger or a pastor there in the city of Pergamos who is overseeing the church. And where is this now? Remember, these are actual cities. They are real places. They were certainly real at this time. Letters addressing real issues within the church. And so from here now, as we come to Pergamos, we've traveled north from Smyrna, another 45 miles. So 75 or 80 miles now from that first church in Ephesus. Pergamum was considered one of the finest cities of Asia. It very much functioned as, as a capital city at various points in time. It was not a commercial hub like other cities were. Uh, Ephesus and Smyrna being more port cities, a lot of commerce, a lot of travel through. This particular city was known more for its intellectual and its cultural presence. There was education there. It had an impressive library. It's said to, to be second only to the library in Alexandria. Over 200,000 manuscripts kept at the library there in Pergamos. And uh, they had a strong focus there on the sciences, on medicine. And one of its most prominent pagan temples, so again, pagan worship, uh, very much still in this city as well. One of the most prominent temples was to, and it's uh, translated uh, differently, uh, either Esculapius or Asclepius, the, the, uh, the latter there being a little bit easier to say, uh, which means, translated, what this means is preserver or savior. So they had a, a prominent pagan temple to Asclepius, and, and this name meant Savior. And, and lest you think that, oh, okay, well, well they had a concept then of, of, of Jesus. No, this was a pagan God that they worshipped as a preserver, as a Savior, as a healer. And so this was the pagan God of healing, 
And worship of him involved a live serpent in this particular temple. So you would go into this temple and they would worship before a live serpent. And this is where we get the symbol for medicine that we use still today. The rod of Asclepius is the rod with the snake wrapped around it. And um, in the early science of, of medicine, uh, not only here but, but elsewhere throughout the then known world and following, was often identified with the worship of Satan. And still today we know that areas... Um, and, and so this is the interesting thing, right? So you have... You have this particular city, pagan worship is prominent here. It's a prominent city, but it's very much a city that has a sense of we're educated, we're learning about the sciences, we're learning about medicine. And, and even in our culture today, you find cities that have more of a prominent university presence, a medical presence, the sciences, and they, the, such cities are often sort of uh, characterized by atheistic or agnostic beliefs. Right? Sometimes an air of arrogance, this sense that we've got things figured out. We don't need uh, faith. We don't need God. Uh, we're all about uh, science and, and, and the study uh, of it. And so many of our universities today sadly are devoid of God. And, and in many of these cases as well, it's, 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 it's hard to believe because many of these institutions, these, these schools, had their roots in biblical instruction. Many of these universities were founded to train up pastors for the ministry. And, and uh, my, how far so many of them have come from their roots. And, and I would ask the question of, of what happened to some of these places. So again, in our own cultural context today, as we look at, as we look at uh, higher education, what happened to these places that had their roots in the Word of God? They didn't abandon it overnight, it's not like these schools just up and said, you know, hey, we're worshiping the Lord on, on, on Monday and come Tuesday, we're done with all of this. It was a slow fade. It was, it was what the world has called progressive, right? And progressive would be true in so much as we would recognize it as a progressive deterioration, a progressive erosion of the foundations of truth. That's what's happened in so many of our cities today. It was, it was slow and subtle compromise over time. In many of these universities, in these various institutions, it was a slow fade. The, the foundation was slowly eroding, and, and, and eventually they come to the place they are today. They slowly compromised with the world, and that's what we see happening in this church in Pergamos. This is what Jesus is, is writing to. This is what he's addressing is this church that, as we will see, had a strong presence at one point, but because of a variety of different circumstances and, and one main con con contributing factor, the foundation began to erode. They began to compromise. They began to align with the things of the world. And uh, it's an interesting thing here. The, the, the order of these churches, you know, we come from the church in Smyrna, this church that experienced tremendous persecution, but in the face of such perse persecution, the church only grew. It only strengthened. And that's, that's even still today what we see, that areas around the world that are experiencing persecution are areas where we see the church growing. 
And so when Satan seeks to destroy the church as he did there in Smyrna with bringing persecution against it, he finds that it only grew. And so what does he do instead? Well, then we have the example of Pergamos where if, if, if Satan can't destroy it by bringing persecution against it, then he'll destroy it by infiltrating it and subtly begin to just tear apart the foundations. And so, truly, from a historical perspective, we had Smyrna that serves as a, a period of church history marked by persecution. But, but then, as persecution largely diminished in the Roman Empire by the year 313 A.D. under the reign of Constantine, we then see the issues that started to come into uh, the compromising church. In fact, we should hone in on that for a moment. Um, this particular event that, that happens in history, Emperor Constantine, he was, he was recognized as emperor, but he had somebody who was, who was basically competing for the throne. His name was Maxentius. And they engaged in a power struggle for the rule of Rome. And they met for a battle. It was the Battle of Milvian Bridge on October 28th of 312 A.D. Now Constantine up to this point was a pagan. Uh, and he was a pagan monotheist. He was a devotee to the sun god Sol Invictus. It was the, the god of the unconquered sun. But before the Milvian Bridge battle, he and his army, it's reported, saw a cross of light in the sky above the sun with the words in Greek that are generally translated into Latin as in hoc signo vincis, in this sign conquer. And so on this particular night, Constantine had a dream in which Christ told him he should use the sign of the cross against his enemies. And he was so impacted by this dream, he was so taken by this dream that he had the Christian symbol of the cross marked on his soldiers' shields and went out into battle and had an overwhelming victory over Maxentius and he attributed it to the God of the Christians and was himself reportedly converted. And so his own supposed conversion then gave way to uh, alleviation of persecution through the then known world, in Rome especially, and then from there made Christianity the official state religion. Yay! Right? No. <laughs> because with this started to bring in significant compromise into the church. The church began to compromise its position more and more in order to maintain favor and power. The absence of persecution made life pretty good for a while, but with comfort comes laziness, apathy. Now the church has power. The people who are in power want more of that power. This specifically, this, this transition brought about a hierarchy in the church. Bishops were established. There was a bishop of Rome. Now the bishop of Rome claimed to have increased power and authority because of his proximity to the emperor. This gave way then to the idea of what's called apostolic succession, that authority in the church resides in Rome, resides in the, with the bishop in Rome, and that anybody who holds that position has a clear link all the way back to the apostle Peter, who is viewed as the foundation of the church. And this is still the stance of the Catholic Church today. But we know these things aren't true. Power in the church does not reside with the state. It's not a state religion. It, it, there, there is intended to be a separation 
at least from an American perspective, a separation between the church and state, which, by the way, doesn't mean what most people think it means today. When the separation of church and state was first established under Thomas Jefferson, it was with the sole intention of protecting the church. And so we know that power for the church does not reside uh, in the state, nor does it rest in Peter. The Apostle Peter is not the foundation of the church. Rather, the power in the church is found in Jesus. It's his church. He's the foundation of the church. It's Jesus who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I believe that even when Jesus was communicating there with Peter, that if, if, if rightly translated, this is my perspective, that when he says, on this rock I will build my church, that Jesus was referencing himself, Peter being the small rock and Jesus being the big rock. And he's saying, the church is going to be established on me, not on Peter. That's a whole nother study. But compromise. Compromise is the problem in this church. Alliance with the world is, is the problem that comes about in this church. And what is it that that calls the church out of such compromise? What is it that can bring a church back to where it is supposed to be? The truth of God's Word. Once again, John writes, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Who is he? Jesus Remember, every letter we get at the beginning, a description of the glorified risen Lord. Different in each of the letters. And here we have this letter's description of Jesus. And it is no accident that for this compromising church, it's shared that Jesus has the sharp two-edged sword. What is that sword? It is the Word of God. To a church that is compromising, to a church that is, is running the risk of aligning itself with the world, to the church that's getting a little too comfortable and cozy with the things of the world, you need the truth of God's Word to bring you back. And here is the sword, the two-edged sword, that on one edge brings condemnation and rejection for those who reject grace, and on the other serves to break the chains of sin and condemnation and bring salvation to those who receive it. That's the power of God's Word. It's an amazing, powerful Word. The author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 4, verse 12, that the Word of God is living and powerful, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and of marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There is no other book on the planet that can do what this book does. Amen? This book is alive. It's powerful. It is the Word of God. It's no mistake that it's the best-selling book of all time. Furthermore, you will not find any book like it. Try as you might. And anybody who questions anything about the Bible, all you have to do is just, you know, just go to them and say, go into a library. And you can, even, you can even go into an area where you have similar topics. And I want for you to find for me 66 books written in three different languages with 40 authors written over the period of 2,000 years. That's consistent, every one of them. You're not going to find it. To find a book like that, you'd have to say, well, something supernatural has to put a book like that together. That's this book. It's the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures. And, and, and if you're here tonight, chances are you have an understanding that this book has power, that maybe it's had an impact in your life, it's made a change in your life. 
And wherever you are in your walk with the Lord, whether young or old as it were in your faith, there's more and more of this book that draws you in. And it's a book that you can read over and over and over and over and over again. And every time just be blown away by the things you never saw before. It's powerful. But it has the ability to pierce our hearts. To, to divide us. To, to get to the heart of the matter. The intents of the heart. And we're going to see this again in Revelation. In Revelation 19 and verse 15, we'll see here a description of Jesus as He comes. And he, he comes on the white horse and it says a few verses later, now out of His mouth goes a sharp sword that with it He should strike the nations. It's the Word of God that has, that, that has power. It's the Word of God that, that brings change. It's the Word of God that, 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 that brings about uh, repentance it's the word of god all by the power of the spirit that brings about condemnation to those who have rejected him and and here friends as we're dealing with the compromising church it's important to understand then that 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 here the description of jesus the one with the the two-edged sword it's saying look you need the truth of the word of god and it's important for us to understand today and for the church as a whole the capital c church to understand today that it's a consistent diet of the truth of the word of god that will guard against compromise if you find yourself saying, man, I don't want to be caught in compromise. I don't want to find myself sort of having, having gotten comfortable with the things of the world. Well, a regular diet of the Word of God is going to keep you where you need to be. It's going to ensure good health. Why do we see so much compromise amongst the church today? Because the Word of God is not being taught the way that it should be. And don't get me wrong, there are many, many good churches. Calvary Chapel hasn't cornered the market on teaching the Word of God, but it has a, has a pretty good history of doing so. And praise God for that. And, for, and, and, and it's such a sad thing to think about the, 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 the many sheep today who are believers, but they're starving sheep. They're starving. They're emaciated because they don't have a regular diet of the Word of God. A diet maybe of a, a verse here or a verse there and a whole lot of commentary. And it's wrong. And that's why we must maintain the distinctive of teaching the Word of God line by line, precept upon precept, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, the whole counsel of God. And the Word is His standard. It's, it's, it's the ruler. It's the measuring rod. Now, does that mean then within certain churches that maybe aren't teaching the Word the way that they should be, that there's nothing good, that there's no believers there? No. But that's sort of what's happening in this church, and because of that, there, there is a rebuke for them. But, but there's a commendation as well. There are some things that they are doing. And there's, there are things that we can see in the, in the churches around us today, some that aren't teaching the Word the way that they should be, and they're, they're doing some good things. And so Jesus recognizes that here in verse 13. He says, once again, I know your works. We, we serve a God who knows, He understands. He says, I know your works. And where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. There's been a lot of debate around what exactly this means, this idea of Satan's throne. Was it Pergamos that, that Satan was, that was kind of where he set up camp? And, 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 and was it the case that, that uh, because of the worship of Asclepius and the worship of the serpent there, that that, that, that was Satan's throne, and, and some have argued that. 
I think more than anything, and you can debate those different things, but it's understood here what Jesus is recognizing, what he's understanding about them is he's saying, look, I know your works, and I know where you dwell, and that is that you're living in a difficult environment. You are in a place where you are living that, that persecution is still heavy against you. And at this particular time it was, um, the account with Constantine that, that comes a little bit later on. And so Jesus here is recognizing that they're in a difficult situation and there have been some of them that have stood firm in the faith, even though it hasn't been easy. No different than, than Smyrna, if you did not go to uh, the, the, the temple to worship Caesar, specifically in the, the temple to Caesar Augustus was established here in, in Pergamos, if you didn't go once a year and bend the knee and burn the incense and declare that Caesar was Lord, you didn't get your certificate, you weren't a part of the guild, you couldn't get a job, you couldn't earn money, even if you had money, you couldn't buy anything because they were going to reject you. And again, in different cities, that was handled differently. Not everybody was as strict, but, but that was the case. And so no different than Smyrna, there were people here who were enduring great difficulties because of their stance for Christ. And Jesus recognizes this. He recognizes their faithfulness and says, And you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And so here Jesus recognizes that there, there was one who was martyred there, and it's believed that he was one of the first martyrs in this area, which is why he's highlighted. And so they've endured difficult times. God understands. People have been martyred for their faith. This church stood strong for many years. The compromise had just begun. And it's being addressed here. It's a warning that's coming to them. Now of Antipas, we don't know much about him other than his early martyrdom in this church's history. Author Hal Lindsay writes, Church tradition tells us that this first martyr called Antipas was brought before a statue of Caesar and told to swear that Caesar was God. But Antipas boldly proclaimed that Jesus alone was the Lord, and that there was no other God but He. The Roman official exclaimed, Antipas, don't you know that the whole world is against you? To which he replied, then Antipas is against the whole world. Antipas was then placed inside of a brass bull, which was heated with fire until he was roasted to death. Antipas's name means stand or standing against all. Don't ever say there's nothing in a name. And so there was a faithful group of believers. They were standing firm. Jesus sees this. He recognizes this. But as their persecution subsided, as, as Christianity became accepted, the enemy invaded in the way of compromise with the world, and we'll understand a little bit more about how that works in a moment. And so then comes the condemnation or the rebuke against them. He writes, verse 14, But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. He says here, I have a few things. That's not good. It'd be nice if he said, I have one thing. <laughs> Short list. Let's address this. He says, no, there's a few. There's a couple problems here. 
The first of which, he says, that there are some of you there, not all of you, remember he's recognized that there are some who have stood firm in the faith, but there are some of you who hold to the doctrine of Balaam. Well, what is the doctrine of Balaam? The doctrine of Balaam is discussed in a few places throughout Scripture. We find the, the, the full understanding of it in the, the book of Numbers. Um, and then it comes up again a little bit later on in the, in the New Testament, including, of course, here in Revelation. But it's Balaam who served as a prophet and was able to teach Balak uh, to uh, put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. And so what's being called out here is the fact that this church, though they had some who were standing firm in the faith, there's a problem there. This church was tolerating evil and false teaching. Again, there, there was compromise that was happening. There wasn't a consistent diet of the truth of the Word of God. And so they were beginning to tolerate false teaching amongst them. And the first issue here mentioned is that they hold to the doctrine of Balaam. Now, Balak was the king of Moab. And he goes to the prophet Balaam because he wants to, he, he's threatened by the increasing uh, size of Israel. He wants to deal with who he perceives as his enemy. And so he goes to the prophet Balaam and he seeks his services. He wants the prophet to go and curse God's people. And so he sends word via his men to Balaam and, and, and sort of puts out his terms to him. And, and at first, Balaam was a tough sell, but the king persists and he comes to Balaam again. And for whatever reason, Balaam decides, and no doubt greed on his part, to take the job. He's going to, as a prophet, go out and curse Israel. And so Balaam sets out on this mission, and this is the account, if you're familiar with it, where it's kind of funny because he sets out on a donkey. And he's making his way along, you know, and he's going to go curse the nation Israel. And, well, this donkey has better vision than Balaam does at this time because he's been clouded by his own greed and, and just the evil that's, that's working in his heart. But the donkey, the donkey is able to see that there's an angel of the Lord that's blocking the way. And so the donkey says, well, I, I, I'm not going to go forward. There's an angel blocking the way. And the donkey starts to move off one way. And, and Balaam's all angry and he's getting mad at the donkey and trying to get it to go the other way and back the other way and runs him into a rock and Balaam's cursing the donkey now and he's hitting the donkey and at one point the donkey just kind of rolls over and goes on top of him and now Balaam's really mad because this stupid donkey won't do what it's supposed to do and now it's falling over and we're just laying here like a bunch of fools and he goes to hit the donkey again and and God gives the donkey the ability to to speak and because of you know, our own entertainment these days, you can't help but hear him talk like Donkey from Shrek, right? Got a little Eddie Murphy in there. And, and, but the donkey starts to speak to him. And now if the donkey was going to begin to speak to you, you might pay attention. But Balaam's so foolish in this moment that as the donkey speaks to him and says, what have I done to you? He just begins to have a conversation with the donkey and tell him how frustrated he is. And you're thinking, dude, the donkey's talking to you. Isn't that enough to make you go, well, this is different. Maybe I ought to pay attention, right? And so there's this whole interaction going down, and these are some of the funny stories we find in the Bible. And the fact of the matter is, God is seeking to prevent Balaam from going and doing this thing. But Balaam's so, so bent on disobeying the Lord. 
And, and, and God in his, in his mercy and certainly His protection of Israel is seeking to stop him from doing this. And so Balaam persists, but, but, every, time he, but every time he goes to fulfill this, he, 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 just, he has to bless. Because he's a, he's a prophet of Israel, he has to bless the nation of Israel. And so, of course, Balak gets all kinds of frustrated and says, What in the world? I paid you good money to curse these guys, and all you're doing is blessing them. And Balaam says, Look, I told you from the very beginning, my words can't go beyond the word of the Lord. He's got the final say on all of this. So what does he do? Foolishly, certainly, Balaam says, Okay, maybe there's another way. So he hatches another plan to bring a curse upon Israel. And in Numbers, in chapter 25, this is really at the end, the tail end of this entire account, in verses 1 through 3, we read, Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And so Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. You see, unsuccessful in his attempts to curse Israel, and Balak thinking the prophet's just going to go out there and curse them, and I'm going to be able to overtake them, but that didn't work out. And so Balaam instead counsels the Midianites and the Moabites to just go ahead and tempt the Israelites. Rather than seeking to just simply overtake them, why don't you go and befriend them? Make them think that everything's just okay. It's, it, let's all just get along. And so they began to intermarry. They began to compromise and idol worship. Balaam goes to Balak and said, here's the plan, no doubt influenced by Satan. Just go ahead and put before them the things of the world. Entice them a little, and they'll fall. Let me tell you, Satan doesn't have any new methods or new tricks today. It's the same old thing. It's the same thing. And the Lord is saying to this church, you have some among you who are holding to this doctrine. That is, we're going to go ahead and just indulge in the things of the world. He goes on to say in verse 15, Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now Jesus has said this before. He said this regarding the church there in Ephesus. And what we know of the Nicolaitans, there's one theory that this is really about hierarchy within the church, specific leaders and power and oppression, and that in some respects may be true, but I think especially how it's connected here with the doctrine of Balaam, it's, it's probably more the view that the Nicolaitans are the followers of Nicholas of Antioch, who was believed to be one of the early deacons elected in the church, one of the first seven there to serve. And uh, Irenaeus writes... Uh, an early church father, that they lead lives of unrestrained indulgence. The character of these men is plainly pointed out in the Apocalypse of John as teaching that it is a matter of indifference to practice adultery or to eat things sacrificed to idols. Hippolytus, who's a student of Irenaeus, who wrote this in the early 3rd century, associated the Nicolaitans with the Gnostics, saying there are, however, among the Gnostics, diversities of opinion, but Nicholas has been a cause of the widespread combination of these wicked men. He departed from correct doctrine and was in the habit of inculcating indifferency of both life and food. And so, really, it was believed that he was one of uh, these people who led an effort to teach the people in the church that the spirit and the flesh are distinct, and thus you can indulge the flesh without any effect on the spirit. And so, as long as we're here in the flesh, why don't we go ahead and just indulge it however we'd like? 
And somebody comes into the church and begins to teach this and begins to preach this and, and begins to, to uh, entice people into, and not surprisingly tap into some fleshly desires and to convince them through their own teaching and through their own false doctrine that it's okay. God's perfectly fine with this. You can go ahead and do the things you want, do the things that your flesh desires. Your spirit belongs to the Lord and you'll be with Him for eternity. And you can just go ahead and live your best life now. And then this is allowed. It's not addressed. All these different things, all these different comforts with the world and, and more of a focus on politics and, and, and having power and achieving certain things and getting certain leaders in power so that certain things can be maintained. And it goes unchecked. Any of those things sound similar? Some of what we're experiencing today? And the Lord says, I hate this. There's a problem. You need to address this. You need to deal with this. How do you deal with this? You've got to bring the Word back to call these things out, to identify what a right standard is, what right living looks like, what I've called you to. And so God says in verse 16, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. There again, the two-edged sword. Look, I'm going to bring the Word of God to bear on this situation. The problem is, here amongst this church, eventually compromise gave way to acceptance. And when Rome officially embraced the church, it became so polluted. Corruption, departure from biblical doctrine, mixing with pagan elements. And we can look at this church historically, and we can see all that's happened, but we must then be willing to say, okay, this is a historical example of what happened, but it's still... It's still within the church today and even in our own lives. A, a, a right reading of this particular text should prompt us to say, is there compromise in my life? Is there compromise amongst us today? Are there things that are going on that, that's just sort of being tolerated? Are there things in our individual lives that we're convincing ourselves is okay, that God really doesn't mind? Or are there people that you're serving as a tool of Satan by, by encouraging them to compromise on their own life, by telling them that something in their life is okay instead of calling them to holiness and to saying, God wants you to be different. He wants you to be set apart. He wants your life to look different. And challenge one another. What are the areas in your life that might be an area of compromise? Whatever it is, God's saying, you're in sin. Repent of this. We've got to be willing to do that. We've got to be willing to let the Lord search our hearts. To see if there's any wicked way in us. He says in verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Guys, there's so much compromise still today. And so much of it is being debated and, 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 and then supported. Not just comp from compromise to acceptance. Whether we see amongst the churches a, a, a move of the LGBTQ acceptance. Right? And church is embracing that. And fundamentally changing the reading of Scripture. Changing their belief on doctrine. Churches that were established on the truth of the Word of God that now have just gone solely into the world. Accepting these things instead of calling people to truth. Doing so lovingly. And folks on the other end of the spectrum there that are, that are demonizing and, and harassing and condemning. That's not the right approach either. To speak the truth in love. And I don't know, you know, what nerve I might hit amongst somebody, but I'm tired of seeing, you know, seeker-friendly efforts to say, come to bruise and Bible study. Right? Bourbon and Bible. 
Churches in our own town that have a significant presence and a, and, and, a, and a ministry to those who are recovering from such issues in their life. And leaders in that church hosting Bible studies in their home where they smoke cigars and drink liquor. It's in our own city. I'm not going to name who it is. It's more than one. And I'm not doubting necessarily that they know the Lord. I'm not going to go that far. But are we willing to go look? We're called to be holy as He is holy. And does that mean sinless perfection? No. Does that mean that we sort of carry ourselves about as being better than somebody else and higher than somebody else? No, not at all. That's not, a, that's not at all what holiness is talking about. It's talking about being set apart, being different, living differently such that your life would be used to point other people to God. It's about recognizing, no, we are the same, but yet I'm different. I'm doing things differently. I'm acting differently because of, of, of what He's done in my life. We're called to be a kingdom of priests that we serve to, to bring God to people and people to God. And we don't do that by acting like the rest of the world because when we act like the rest of the world, there's nothing about our lives that would cause anybody to go, oh, I want to know more about that. It's like everybody else. And the problem within the church, especially when we seek to be so seeker-friendly and, and attractional and we try to do all the things that the world does, the problem is the world does it better. So then we just look like fakes. No, let's be us. Let's be the church. Pursue Him. Stand fast in the truth of the Word of God. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. And he says, to him who overcomes. And so here now he uses the language of an overcomer. And so this is important for us because the fact of the matter is this is hard. So as much as I have to, you know, here, it's easy for me to just go, well, this is happening and this is happening. And for us to go, oh, man, that's, but, but, but when compromise starts to, starts to creep in, when these various things that we're confronted with, and we're confronted with it increasingly so, and it's not easy, it's not easy to stand for truth. It's hard because chances are sooner or later, especially with the trajectory that we see today, you are going to, if you haven't already, come face to face with somebody you love, somebody you care about, and you're going to have to say, I'm sorry, we're not on the same page with this issue. And I can't be a part of this. I can't condone this. I can't support this. Please know I love you, but I've got to stand for truth. But to him who overcomes, and so what he's recognizing here is life is a battle. In this life, it's a battle, okay? And so we indeed, when we are ushered into glory, will be overcomers. There's a lot that we can say, man, I, I overcame that. And, and, and the reality here that we are engaged in spiritual warfare on a daily basis in ways that we often overlook. I think when we think about spiritual warfare, we sort of compartmentalize it, or every now and then there's this spiritual warfare, there's this, 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 this attack maybe that comes against us, or some people think about spiritual warfare as only like these angels and demons just sort of duking it out out there, and we, man, if I could see that, it'd be kind of crazy. But the fact of the matter is, you're dealing with spiritual warfare every day as you seek to live this life for Christ. And the resistance to compromise and, and, and to not go the way of the world in your parenting, in your marriages, in your friendships, in the workplace, you're going to battle. And that's why the Apostle Paul calls us to before you go out, before you do anything, what do you do? You put on the armor. You don't go outside in your undies. That's foolish, right? That'd be silly. Who's going to do that? No, you go out dressed. How are, how are Christians to dress? Man, you're to get up and get yourself ready. You put on that helmet. You put on that breastplate. 
you shod yourself in the proper shoes and, 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 and you gird yourself with the belt of truth. You, you put that whole thing on because you know when you go out, you're going into battle every single day. And the more you do that, the more you're accustomed to it and you, and, and you gauge in prayer. You talk with your commanding officer. You, you become more confident about where you're going and what the strategy is. And you know he goes before you and he's your rear guard. And so you don't go out afraid, but you say, I'm ready to do this. But it's a battle. And the battle's not just outside your home. It happens inside your home. Don't be surprised by it. But here's the wonderful promise. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And so if, 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 if you have faith, if you believe in Him, if you trust Him, you will overcome. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, and they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. They overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Or Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, but Christ as the Son over His own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded so, by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Over and over and over again, we're called as Christians to say, press on, let's go, understand the battle that you're in, but, but with Him you can overcome. And, 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 and as we do, and the longer we walk with Him, and the closer we get to glory, the more we ought to be focused then on what we're pressing towards. Arthur Pink uh, makes a powerful statement. He says, as they draw nearer the end of their pilgrimage, the Lord's people should project their thoughts more and more unto what awaits them in heaven. The worn out worldling seeks satisfaction in living over again in his mind those pleasures of sin which engaged him in the past. But the veteran saint will rather contemplate those pleasures forevermore which are at God's right hand. A part of what those pleasures consist of, consist of is intimated in Revelation 2.17. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the hidden manna. He's saying here, look, it's the people who aren't really walking with the Lord who are young and in faith that continue to look back at the pleasures of past sin. To look back, and do you ever find yourself doing that? Oh, you're just looking back, looking back to those things. Maybe I can have those things again. Maybe I can go back to those things. The draw, the enticement's still there, the desire to compromise. But the more you press on in Him, the more you trust Him, the more your faith is in Him, the more you're going to start to go, man, I don't want anything that this world has to offer. I'm done with all this stuff here. I am looking forward to what He has for me in glory. And you begin to set your eyes more and more on the promises of heaven. We ought to be heavenly-minded people. People who are looking toward heaven, not to the things of this earth. And, and this is the promise that we're given. These are the words of Jesus here. He says, To he who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. What in the world is that? Hidden manna, right? <laughs> I, Jesus says we can have some of it if we overcome. And I think to myself, I want that. I want to try that. The question for us is, are you eager? Ask yourself this question. Ask in your mind, am I eager for hidden manna? And some of you are probably like, I haven't thought about that before. I haven't, I haven't craved that before. We need to start craving it. We need to want it. Why? 
Because Jesus says, this is what you're going to get when you overcome. What do we know about it? It's one of those things that's a little mysterious. We don't fully know, but we can speculate. Here's the thing. First, the manna was food, we know this, which God supplied from heaven, right? That's what we know about manna. A lot of times I say when I'm eating a burrito, thank you, Lord, for this heavenly manna. That or a cookie. Those two fall in the same category for me. They have to be something like that. And so here it's God's way of supplying for His people. 12,500 mornings. I had manna. The next time you think about, man, I don't want to eat this stupid breakfast again, you just need to think, has it been 12,500 mornings that you've eaten this? It nourished them. It sustained them throughout their wilderness journey. And so what we know then, man is a picture It was a real thing, but it's also a picture. It's a picture for us of the Word, which is our spiritual sustenance. And we know that the Word of God, 1 Peter 1.23, lives and abides forever. And we see here this mention of hidden manna. And and really, we, we have to kind of begin to speculate here that this is something that God has stored up for us in heaven. At 1 Corinthians, in chapter 13, verses 9 through 12, Paul writes, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now, we see in a mirror, dimly, but then, face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. Why do I mention this here? Because Paul's saying there's going to come a time when so much of this stuff becomes so clear. All we see right now is a little reflection, but but there's going to come a time when we see it face to face, when we know it fully. He says now we know in part, but then we shall know in full. And then in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 12, verse 7, this is where Paul gives that little account of the, I knew a guy, he, he, he died and he went to heaven. He doesn't really say who it is, but we're like, we know it's you, Paul. But he's thinking, I don't want to, you know, I didn't want to flex on you guys that I've been to heaven, okay? And so he's trying to keep it kind of low key. But he says something about this. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7, he says that heaven, this place that he went to, there was abundance of revelation. Think about that for a moment. Paul says, I went to a place. I got a glimpse. And when I was there, there was an abundance of revelation. He said, things made sense. Stuff was clear. Questions were answered. Think about, uh, think about when Jesus was walking there on the, on the road to Emmaus, and he wasn't recognized. He was with a couple of guys, and it was after the time of the resurrection, and he comes along, and they, they, these guys don't know who he is, and a lot of theories as to why they didn't understand or couldn't see him, but he comes up to him and he says, hey, you know, what are you guys talking about? And these guys are like, are you kidding me? Don't you know? Haven't you heard? What, wh- who's this guy? And imagine when they realize they're walking with Jesus. How oh, stupid. I can't believe I said that. And so they're walking along, and, 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 and what happens in that, in that encounter is that Jesus begins to expound to them on all the law and the prophets. It's a sermon that we don't have. Oh, I wish we had it. But I trust that this is going to be one of those things in heaven where I, I want to be like, Jesus, what'd you say? And, and even there at the end of John, in the Gospel of John, uh, it's, I think it's in John, where, uh, yeah, in John chapter 21, where he says, look, I can't even begin to capture everything. There's so much more. There's so much more. And, and, and 
And the manna, we know, which God gave to Israel in the wilderness, we also know it was a type of, of, of Jesus, because Jesus says then that I'm the bread of life. It's me. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And it's Paul who writes in Colossians, in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, in whom Jesus are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Okay, listen, as I'm saying some of these things, there's some of you kind of feeling like, oh, I want to know these things. I want to understand this. I want to experience this. I want to, I want to see these things. Can I get an amen on that? Guys, there's got to be an excitement to that. Because here what we have recorded in Scripture is our glorified, risen Lord Jesus saying, look, if you overcome, if, 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 you, if you get across that finish line, I'm going to give you something special that you don't know anything about. And that our understanding of it suggests that it's going to be all those things that we found ourselves throughout life perhaps yearning for and wanting to understand and to know. There is so much in store for those who overcome that the things of the world pale in comparison to. But the only way where we can ensure that we won't compromise is living a life surrendered to Christ and, and planting ourselves firmly in His Word and saying, Lord, I don't want to know the things of the world. And Lord, they entice me. Be honest with God. Lord, these things, the enemy knows. He knows how to tempt me. But I don't want it, Lord. I want you. And to make that your constant prayer. And then he closes out by saying, and I will give him, because that wasn't enough, he says, I'll give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So again here, a little bit of mystery, but something that should cause us to go, ooh, what's that? I want that too, right? You know you do. David Guzik writes of this stone, he says, in the ancient world, the use of a white stone had many associations. A white stone could be a ticket to a banquet, a sign of friendship, evidence of having been counted, or as a sign of acquittal in a court of law. Jesus may have any one of these meanings in mind, but at the very least we know that it has the assurance of blessing. Many say that it was like casting a vote. You had a white stone and you had a black stone. You throw the white stone in, it's your approval of this particular thing or person person if it was a black stone you're done you're gone some people say that's where we get the phrase you've been blackballed you're you're out whatever it is this stone jesus says to him overcomes it's an acquittal for you it's a ticket to a banquet and indeed there will be an incredible banquet a feast it's a vote cast in your favor and on it a new name a new name what will that name be what will that name be some people say it's going to be the name of Jesus. And others say, no, this is, this is a new name for you. This is, this, is, this is God giving you as you enter into glory. This is Him saying, you're going to be called this. We don't know exactly what it is other than it's personal. Other than it's special. That it's something that Jesus is saying, look, if you stick with me, there's so much in store for you. Jesus says, there's so much more. Just stick with it. Don't compromise with the world. Don't seek favor with the world. Don't get in bed with politicians to advance the kingdom here. Keep your eye on the kingdom of heaven. Keep your eyes on Jesus and you'll overcome all of this. And I'll give you things that you can never even imagine. Amen?
is we've got to resist the compromise that will continue to be ever before us. To stand firm in the faith, to be in the Word, to allow the Holy Spirit through the Word to convict us, to challenge us, and to know that He's in you. If we abide in Him, He abides in you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for our time in your word here tonight. We thank you for, Lord, the example of this church, Lord, albeit uh, it's a challenging example. It's not one, certainly, Lord, that we desire uh, to live out, um, but one, Lord, that, that causes us to, to step back, Lord, and to, and to consider and to evaluate. And the, I pray, Lord, to allow you to search our hearts, Lord, to see if there's any bend towards compromise in us, if there's anything, Lord, in our lives currently that we need to say, Lord, I know that you don't want this. Your word says friendship with the world is enmity with God. Lord, the world, Satan, the prince of the power of the air, already entices us. Lord, may we stand firm. May we stand for truth. May we do so in love, Lord, where necessary. And Lord, just keep us. Keep our eyes fixed upon you. Keep our, our eyes fixed upon your kingdom. May we be heavenly minded, Lord, looking to the things, Lord, that are above, not the things on this world, on this earth. And so, Lord, uh, do that work within us. Go before us, Lord. Go before each of these here, Lord, tonight. Lead them, guide them, Lord, cause us to be a people who are walking faithfully, Lord, following hard after you. We love you, Lord, and we praise you, and thank you for our time together this evening, and ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure that you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit our website at ccnortheast.org.